Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Dan Malthrop, chief executive here, also a proud member. Today is October 19th, 9th, pardon me, October 9th, and you are with a virtual City Club forum. We're live from the studios of 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream. They're our public media partner. We're very grateful for their partnership. The coronavirus pandemic has done a few things when it comes to education. It has, of course, further exposed the harsh realities of disparities in our education system that often break along racial lines. And the shift away from in-person learning to remote learning, along with the pandemic itself, has created a kind of collective trauma, which clearly needs to be addressed. This poses new challenges for schools and teachers, specifically how to support the social and emotional growth of students who are experiencing trauma on such a large scale. And, of course, how to do that while mastering the technological tools necessary for distance learning. Today, we're going to speak with two experts in trauma-informed educational practices, an approach that shifts the focus away from the student's academic or behavioral deficits and instead focuses on building relationships and learning environments that are conducive to social and emotional growth. We're also going to discuss the specific role that educators occupy and the ongoing need for self-care for educators. With us today, Habiba Grimes. She's the CEO of the Positive Education Program, also known as PEP. PEP provides educational services to families and children facing severe mental health and behavioral challenges here in Greater Cleveland. And also with us, Dr. Megan Holmes. She's the founding director of the Center for on Trauma and Adversity at the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel School of Applied Social Sciences at Case Western Reserve University. Dr. Holmes, Habiba Grimes, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's, Thank you for having us. It is great to have you both at the City Club. Our forum today, I should mention, is a recognition of NEOEA Day, which is an annual day reserved for the professional development of educators and members of the Northeast Ohio Education Association, which was established in 1869. That's 151 years of helping teachers teach better. So thank you to the members of NEOEA. As in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Text them to 330-541-5794, 330-541-5794 if you have questions about trauma-informed care and trauma-informed pedagogy. You can also tweet them at the City Club, and we'll work them into the program. Habiba Grimes, I'd like to start with you and the children and families you work with at PEP. This has been an extraordinary seven, eight months. How is everybody doing? Thank you for asking, Dan. Um, this has been an extraordinary seven months. Uh, I want to first um, just hold space for the beautiful resilience of the children and families that we serve at PEP and for the staff who are working with them. It has been tough to navigate the remote learning, navigate telehealth in order to get access to behavioral health services that we provide, um, to get resources that families have needed during this time. But our families have proven that they have the ability to persevere 
despite really significant adversity that has actually compounded um, their already fairly challenging circumstances. And so they've worked hard to get the learning, get access to the learning environment that we've provided uh, or access to learning environments from their local school districts. They've worked hard to stay connected to their providers and they've worked hard to um, continue to make progress. But it has been tough and we know that families have been greatly stressed. Our, our young people have been greatly stressed during this time, being away from their school environments, their peers, um, extended family, and in some instances, um, struggling with things like housing insecurity, um, e economic challenges for the caregivers who are, are trying to be a support in an ongoing way to their young people. And our, our, our young people have significant mental health challenges. And so just that continuous day-to-day um, -day stress of trying to navigate those mental health challenges for our parents and caregivers and for our young people, it has been a significant challenge. Our providers, our, our behavioral health providers and our educators and our educational leaders and the administrators and administrative support folks who help get services to our kids and families have also stepped up. It has been um, an enormous amount of, of work to get supports and services to the children and families that, were, that are counting on us, but we've, we've risen to the occasion. We've shown up in ways that have been awe-inspiring uh, despite having each of us our own personal lives impacted during this pandemic. Habiba Grimes, could you um, anchor us a little bit in the lives of, of the children and families you work with? When we say mental health challenges or behavioral health challenges, specifically what kinds of things are we talking about? So the young people that we serve at PEP are experiencing significant emotional and behavioral challenges. Some of that involves aggression or anger outbursts that adults find hard to manage in a school setting or in a home setting. They may be struggling with really extreme levels of depression. They may harm themselves or they may um, speak of harming themselves. For some, they're struggling with significant developmental challenges, especially autism. And so their ability to communicate their needs, understand what's needed of them, their ability to manage the environment and the sensory stimulation that's happening in the environment is challenged for those young people, to, for some of our young people to a very significant degree. And so they are, are struggling with both learning in a school or, or home setting. They're struggling with relationships to parents, caregivers, others in their lives, and they're struggling with um, getting needs met within the community. Um, for some, there are long uh, generational experiences with, with poverty, experiences with systemic racism, um, and for many of them, they have uh, been struggling as a family for a, a long time. Habiba Grimes is the CEO of PEP. That's the Positive Education Program. They're located in Greater Cleveland. Also with us, Dr. Megan Holmes of Case Western Reserve University Center for Trauma and Adversity, which is part of the Mandel School for Applied Social Sciences. Dr. Holmes, um, these students, these kind, this this group of students that Habiba Grimes and her colleagues work with, that PEP works with, how um, how many? I mean, how widespread is this phenomenon of you know, children at, at sort of all ages kind of dealing with the kind of adversity that makes it difficult for them to stay in a regular school setting? That's a really good question. So when we think about the original ACEs study, 
we say one in three will experience some type of adverse childhood experience before they turn 18. However, when we expand the ACEs out beyond the, the 10 that were measured in that seminal study, we actually see much higher rates. So when we expand it and we think about the community, adverse community environments such as poverty, discrimination, um, lack of opportunity through uh, economic mobility and social capital, we start to see much, much higher rates to nearly everyone experiencing some type of trauma. And now that we are in a pandemic, um, we can uh, safely, unfortunately, say that everybody has experienced some form of trauma because we are experiencing collective trauma. That means that the entire society is experiencing a life-threatening illness that may cause them or someone they love to die. And so we're seeing very high rates of uh, post-traumatic stress symptoms. So our, our national study that has about 1,200 people in it had uh, about 85% reported one or more post-traumatic stress symptom, and about a quarter of them would qualify for the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. And this is about five to seven times higher than the national average is. And just to, to couch that in a comparison, when we see uh, active duty military returning from war, that's usually at about seven to eight percent are experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's interesting that you refer to it as post-traumatic stress disorder when the trauma really, we're not behind, it's not behind us yet. Megan Holmes, I'd like you to just explain what ACEs are. You, you threw that out around a, a couple of times there, and I want to make sure that everybody understands. And we've had conversations about adverse childhood experiences at the City Club before, particularly with Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris a couple of years ago. Um, but you also have just expanded the definition beyond childhood experiences to community experiences. But can you talk about that sort of field of study a little bit? Sure. So uh, there was a seminal study that was conducted that um, was back in the 80s, and it was a group from Kaiser Permanente that looked at uh, these adverse childhood experiences. And those include things like domestic violence, having substance abuse in the home, uh, physical, emotional, sexual abuse, and then other areas such as divorce, um, mental illness, incarceration, and whatnot. Uh, and what they found was that the more ACEs an individual experienced before the age of 18, they were related to higher rates of negative health outcomes, including years off of life. And so as we've, you know, as we heard from Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, um, we have continued to study this area because of how important it is to consider the impact on children's lives. But what I think the field has moved more towards now is a more holistic approach of thinking about toxic stress. So it's not just the 10 ACEs that were originally identified, but we're also looking at those adverse community environments. So some work, for example, done by Wendy Ellis, um, she has put together a pair of ACEs framework. And so it identifies those adverse childhood experiences, but also the adverse community environments that are really within the roots of our community that we need to also be addressing. And the science, if please correct my my understanding of the science if I get if I get this wrong, but the science is that these this level of toxic stress produces higher levels of cortisol inside the body, which then are, are just sort of there for too long. They're not able to be metabolized, and then the result is higher rates of heart disease in adulthood or higher rates of obesity or diabetes or all sorts of other adverse health, health outcomes. Yeah, that's right. It's, so trauma changes the body. 
Um, but the important piece to know is that we can also change the body and the neurobiology through healing. And so that part, which is what we will get to in this discussion, is really about connection. We're getting to it right now. Dr. Megan Holmes is at Case Western Reserve University at the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel School for Applied Social Sciences. Also with us, Habiba Grimes, CEO of the Positive Education Program. And we are looking now at, uh, at trauma-informed care and not just the trauma itself, We've established that. We're all well aware of it at this point, uh, at least in terms of the collective trauma. Um, Habiba Grimes, turning to you, what does trauma-informed care look like, and how is it different from the way we might a school, say a school, the kind of care that a a student might get at a school that's not using that framework? So trauma-informed care is a systemic approach to supporting and helping people who may have experienced trauma. We describe it as a universal precaution in our work given those rates of adverse childhood experiences that were uh, documented in the ACEs study. We can fairly much, pretty much assume that most human beings have been exposed to some level of traumatic stress in the course of their development, which creates vulnerability. And when you take a systems approach to looking at trauma, you think about the entirety of an institution, an organization, or a community, and you apply practices that give voice, give agency to the people who are served, that prioritize their strengths, their their assets, uh, looks to them to help make decisions and also to support themselves and their their uh, the others, um, looks at the whole ecology, not just the environment where the, the individual is being um, served, but the home environment, the community, and thinks about all those aspects of that individual's life as part of their care. Uh, a trauma-informed environment understands that generational and transgenerational uh, traumas can impact how individuals function in their day-to-day. A trauma-informed environment also has a, a framework for helping the providers, the people working and serving, to understand the brain and how the brain responds to stress. And that this isn't work we're doing to someone, it's work that we're doing with individuals. And that we as providers, as deliverers of care, as a so-called expert, we're also subject to the stress response and the impact of that and can it can influence how we treat the people that we serve. Specifically though, like what is it, what, what looks different Okay, well, so I will say this. Um, At PEP, there are a few things that look different for us. And um, I will also say that this is a bit of um, a conundrum for the trauma-informed community, that trauma-informed practice and how it's defined and, as I say in my work, operationalized, um, looks different depending on the standard of care that an an organization, institution, community, so on, adopts. At PEP, we've adopted the sanctuary model as our our foundation for trauma-informed practice. And so those four pillars mean that each and every adult in our organization has been trained in trauma theory, what's happening to the brain under stress, so that we understand ourselves better and the people that we serve better, and also the, 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 the individuals delivering that service and direct care, the unique vulnerabilities that they have. We also have adopted a a model called self so that we think about 
The things that happen to us as an organization, to us as individuals serving within this organization, and to the people that we serve, that our safety, the degree of safety that we experience matters, our emotional state matters, how much loss we've endured has to be acknowledged, and we need to cultivate the capacity to dream and envision and imagine. Third for us, we've adopted a toolkit of strategies that help us talk to one another when there's conflict, help us ensure that there's uh, egalitarianism, so to speak, in decision-making, in uh, communication, in planning. Um, and so those, those are all necessary for us. Lastly, we have a set of commitments that we've, we've uh, committed to that ensure that we are prioritizing um, a culture that lifts up people who've endured hardships and suffering, prioritizes um, our human capacity for higher levels of be ways of being. So thinking through problems and using our, our social network to learn from one another, to teach one another, uh, letting our um, emotions be discussed. So we talk about our emotions, we think about them, we, we name them. Uh, that helps to bring the brain back to a point of centeredness. Um, and we prioritize uh, a community that hears from one another. Not every decision can be made democratically, but we can certainly be heard. We can give voice. So those are the specific practices for us that we've adopted that really operationalize and further our core philosophy in service to trauma-informed practice. Megan Holmes, um, when you look at the world of educators um, across the country and you know across our region, for instance, I mean today was uh, a, this program today was planned months ago in you know before COVID um, as part of a professional development effort that the Northeast Ohio Education Association was conducting. And had we been meeting at the City Club, there would be a room, a couple of hundred people in the room, and a lot of them educators because they want to better understand what trauma-informed care means and how it should inform their pedagogical practice. Do educators, is this part of, of this certainly wasn't part of the, of the schooling that I got when I became a teacher two decades ago. Um, is, it part of the, is it part of the curriculum now? And to what extent is it being taken up? It is. You can see across the country in different programs that uh, more and more educational programs are teaching their future teachers about trauma and what it looks like in their kids and how they can respond in a trauma-informed way. Um, for those that are currently in working as educators right now, and in particularly the leaders, they probably didn't have that in their training. And so this is really something that we are asking and pleading that they uh, take on this approach because of the benefits, not only for the, the children and the youth that are within the schools, but for their staff and their faculty, those teachers, those educators, the ones that are interacting with the children who are experiencing trauma and they themselves experiencing trauma. I want to remind our listeners that you're with the City Club Friday Forum. I'm Dan Malthrop of the City Club, and we're talking today with Megan Holmes, Dr. Megan Holmes of Case Western Reserve University's Mandel School of Applied Social Sciences. She runs the Center on uh, Trauma and Adversity at Case Western. Also with us, Habiba Grimes, the CEO of the Positive Education Program, also known as PEP. 
here in Greater Cleveland. If you have questions, you can text them to 330-541-5794. And when we get to the second half of the, of the program with the Q&A, that's where we'll get our questions from, from all of you. Just text them to 330-541-5794, or you can tweet them at the City Club, and we will work them into the program as well. Um, so are you finding then, Megan Holmes, that the sort of new generation or the emerging leaders in education are already doing this and practicing and, and bringing this practice into their classrooms? I would say more are aware of it, but it's hard to engage in it and to practice it if we don't have the leadership at the district level or within their school supporting it. And so it really needs to be supported by the leadership to say this is an important initiative and we're going to create a culture of change in order to effectively help these kids and keep our staff from burning out. Habiba Grimes, um, the, I know that you recently reopened your doors um, and, and brought, some, brought students back. Were you able to bring all, all of your students back or are some of your students still doing remote we learning? We are in that process um, right now, uh, moving into a hybrid uh, week for our young people, and then we'll, we'll be looking to move to a full-time day. Um, things are, are, are needless to say, impacted by um, what we're seeing happening in the community, and so we're, we're grateful for our community members who've been working hard to stay masked and contain spread so that we can safely move to that full-time schedule. And when you were doing remote learning with your students, um, it seems that so much of this is about personal relationships, about taking about taking a step away from sort of whatever curricular goal you, a teacher may have for a student in that in a, in a day or in a moment, and connecting with the student and making sure that that all of their other emotional needs are being taken care of and, and addressed. That's really hard to do over Zoom. It is, and I know that educators across the country have been impacted by what they're seeing or not seeing uh, when they log into their Zoom uh, or whatever platform, classroom for uh, meeting with their young people and, edu and teaching them um, the, what we're seeing in terms of young people who are not logging in, who are not um, engaging and what that then takes for educators and educational leaders to follow up and de determine what what's happening here um, what's happening with this child that they're not logging into these lessons and um, as opposed to simply marking a, a young person absent and turning away um, educators are leaning in and seeking to understand what's happening it's also meant that they have been available to families called upon by families all day beyond their their necessarily their work day um, on weekends I know that I, I know personally educators who've been working with kids and families talking with them on weekends over summer break um, they've been diligently seeking to stay connected with kids either by phone um, or through the platforms and in some instances by way of home visits to know how kids are doing and what's needed in order to ensure that that child accesses the um, the school for not only those academic uh, supports and services and curriculum, but also the other supports and services that children rely on from schools. Schools serve a multitude of needs uh, for young people. And, and in the beginning of the pandemic, we saw the necessity to, to look to nutritional needs, um, 
healthcare needs, mental health service needs, all of those were compromised when schools had to close their doors. And so the community of educators have been diligently working together to figure out how we maintain contact and, main, and ensure ongoing access to the many, many things that schools make available to their, their students. It sounded like you were going to say something, too, when you said early in your, in your response, you said that the teachers are you know, uh, seeing what they're seeing, or, and then you said what they're not seeing, but, but what they're seeing in Zoom offers this unique glimpse, uh, just sort of a snapshot into people's homes and the, and the home lives of students, which can really provide um, a deeper picture, a better picture of what the context in which a student is trying to learn. It does. Uh, it, it, it helps both educators and um, educational leaders better understand the lives of the children that they're serving when they understand what their home lives are like. Um, Zoom provides that perhaps to a greater degree for many educators, but please know there are so many educators in the public school setting for sure who have um, made home visits and outreach part of their work, part of their way of connecting and building relationships with kids and families, um, that ecological approach. Uh, so many educators have been thinking about their youth the needs of those youth in a trauma-informed way before the language existed that helped them name what they are doing. Um, and for some, um, this has been jarring to, to have that um, in-home view of what children are uh, confronted with and trying to manage, and not just children, but their parents and caregivers too, um, has been intense. Um, and quite frankly, it's a two-way thing Right? So not only am I entering the space of the students that I serve, but they're entering my space as well. And perhaps across the dining table from me is my child trying to learn and grow uh, with their teacher through a screen. Uh, so it, it's, um, it's been an equalizing experience in some ways, but also pretty expository so that we see the conditions that uh, our young people are facing much more clearly. Mm. Megan Holmes, um Part of this, too, uh, teachers are experiencing their own trauma, um, and they, in in moving to remote learning, many are, you know, and many are required to do work that they've never had to do before, but also, I mean, they're kind of experiencing the collective trauma of the pandemic, and they still have to show up, as teachers always do, they still have to show up and be the leader, they have to show up and be, um, and bring the optimism and the belief that um, that uh, challenges can be overcome when they may be feeling particularly hopeless and hopeless themselves. Can you talk about the talk about how, in particular, educators are are grappling with that and what the solutions are for them? Yeah, they're they're you're right. They're experiencing this collective trauma and seeing the kids in their class going through that same similar trauma that they're experiencing. Um, what I would say here is that creating a rare awareness around burnout and secondary trauma. So when you start to feel fatigue, irritable, tired, like you're just not cut out for the job anymore, that's getting on the verge of burnout. And when you start having symptoms of post-traumatic stress, which are, you know, re-experiencing thoughts, um, having high levels of anxiety and depression, 
those are um, symptoms, signs that you're also experiencing secondary trauma, meaning you're traumatized by the work that you're doing uh, with the kids who are experiencing trauma. And so those, um, you know, the first piece is just having awareness about it. So it's not that a teacher is weak or not cut out to do this work. It's that they need more support. And this is really where that building a culture of care for the community of teachers is so important to know that they're not alone, that there's resources, that they can connect with each other. They can use each other as peer supports uh, and build off of the skills that they're using to reduce their stress. Habiba, how are your teachers doing? They are resilient. They are um, determined. They are creative um, and they're inspiring. And they are also worried about their health. They're worried about the education of their own children and how to ensure that their children are cared for so that they can return to work. So a primary responsibility of PEP as an employer has been to work through how we support our, our staff during this time so that they can continue to be resilient and creative and inspiring for the kids and families they serve. It means leveraging the opportunities that have come forward through the relief uh, packages from federal and state um, decisions um, that have been made. And it's meant uh, PEP figuring out how we um, share this, the, the sacrifices that are needed um, with our staff. Uh, and it, it, it has been tough to witness, to be honest. Um, you know, I've had those conversations about um, young people reaching out and needing support and teachers um, are, we describe all of our staff as teacher counselors um, because they educate and they counsel and they're needing to be present and they're feeling this urgency to support so it's 24 hours a day it's seven days a week and it's been throughout the summer break and beyond and of course pep is operating as a an independent nonprofit organization in an environment of constrained resources as well as many other nonprofits are um, so let me just remind everybody that we are uh, you're with the city club friday forum we're talking with habiba grimes ceo of pep the positive education program serving uh, greater cleveland serving children and families that are battling and, and struggling with or meeting and overcoming or um, dealing with particular mental health challenges and behavioral challenges. Also, Megan Holmes, uh, she's the director of the Center on Trauma and Adversity at Case Western Reserve University. If you have a question, text it to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club, and we will work it into the program. First question for both of you, um, many healthcare professionals have said that the next pandemic is going to be a mental health pandemic. What's being done to address this, Megan Holmes? That's a, that, I have heard that statement as well. Um, we know from past disease outbreaks that there is the mental health issue that happens afterwards. So many of the people that experience SARS or Ebola, uh, those healthcare workers in particularly reported high levels of anxiety, depression, um, fear, and post-traumatic stress. And so this we're seeing at a much greater level. We're seeing it globally and um, there isn't an end currently in sight. And so we are gonna continue to see these mental health issues continuing on um, for quite a while. I was told recently that um, Cleveland itself or, or the Northeast Ohio region itself has 
one of the highest rates of attempted suicide among teens. Is that accurate? Habiba Grimes, you're nodding your head. Yes, and you know, as I hear this language around uh, a new, another pandemic, I can't help but feel we've been in a mental health pandemic. It is likely being, it is being exacerbated, if that can be imagined, by the COVID-19 pandemic. But rates of suicide have been increasing. Um, rates among young people have been alarmingly increasing. Thoughts of suicide, those rates uh, reported, uh, thoughts of suicide are increasing and have been increasing for about a decade now. Um, the opioid crisis uh, has really stressed our, our region, our state, our country. Um, and anxiety and depression are at very high rates um, in being reported by young people uh, and young adults. So, you know, when you, you ask what's being done, I look to uh, leadership for the wisdom and the uh, resources to support the mental health response in our country and in our state. Um, I look for, um, I look to the Department of Medicaid here in Ohio, the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, uh, the DeWine administration has placed uh, Director Maureen Corcoran, Director Lori Chris, uh, respectively, as uh, leaders of those those organizations, and we have seen responsiveness to the immediate crisis, um, but also some foundation building that helps prepare uh, mental health providers and systems uh, for supporting the behavioral health needs that um, have been presenting for quite some time and are likely to increase, and so that's hopeful. I, I also um, believe we need to be thinking about the workforce more, um, how to care for them and how to support them and the organizations that uh, employ them. Uh, it is, it's a tough environment to work in right now. Educators are not lining up to teach in this time necessarily, uh, and behavioral health providers are struggling as well. So we need more on the front of a holistic approach to ensure that we're actually ready to support all of the people who will need it in the aftermath of this pandemic. When we talk about a mental health, mental health crises and individuals experiencing mental health, it feels important to mention that if you are experiencing uh, challenges, if you are thinking about hurting yourself, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. The number is 800-273-8255. 800-273-8255. I know that even talking about these sorts of things and hearing people talk about these sorts of things can be triggering for some people. Um, please reach out and ask for help. Another question uh, for both of you, Megan Holmes and Habiba Grimes, what advice would you give to teachers who are trying to teach and support students who are struggling during this time while also practicing self-care? Everyone is suffering in different ways right now. Um, this is really, I think people are looking for really practical advice. I know when I was teaching, like the philosophy was like, I got it. Tell me what to say. What are the words I use? Right? Habiba Grimes. Yes. Uh, I suggest that we center rest, that we center moments of joy, moments of awe, um, opportunities to sit and be centered within ourselves. Um, those are things that have no cost attached to them um, necessarily and are activating to 
the, the neurological systems within the brain and body that help us experience pleasure, that help us experience positive and rewarding feelings to the degree that we can connect, um, if that be virtually, um, but also at a safe distance in person and still getting outdoors. Those are things that I think uh, are critically important to all of us right now as we're navigating this time. Mm -hmm. Megan Holmes, this is a related question I want to put to you, asking for specific examples of teachers implementing this kind of trauma awareness in elementary, middle, and high schools. What is, you know, how, how does a lesson plan change? How does a, how does, how does a curricular, a set of curricular goals change? Sure. So thinking about um, the physical space, so when the kids re-enter, having a safe physical space, a place where they can regulate their bodies um, before moving on to a change in activities. So those transitions are always hard, making sure there's some type of body movement. So getting out of your chair, sitting back down, um, you know, dancing around, whatever they can do. It, it's going to look different now because of COVID and this, the physical distance. Uh, pieces. The other things that I've heard with schools doing that I think are just great are like a tap out system for teachers. So when we know our kids get overwhelmed, but we as teachers get overwhelmed too. And so having the ability to, you know, call the front office and say, I need 10 minutes to tap out, have somebody come in so they can exit the classroom, do those self-keeping uh, skills that Habiba just talked about to regulate their own bodies, reduce their stress, so they can come back and be present to their students. That, so having taught for five years, um, like even just being able to tap out just to go use the bathroom would be nice. I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean, teaching like that, that's a, that's a real innovation and it's so commonsensical as well. Yeah. Um, the uh, very specific question, um, for both of you, too, here, in addition to the pandemic, the U.S. is re experiencing a racial reckoning. How can teachers support students from minority communities who likely experience systemic racism, and how can they be supported both emotionally and psychologically? This is a very particular kind of, kind of challenge. I'll offer first, educate yourself. Um, it is clear uh, based on the efforts here in Cleveland to ensure that Clevelanders understand the history of racism in our country through the Racial Equity Institute um, workshops. There is so much that we don't know about how we got into the state that we're in. It is so important that educators are grounded in the facts of history um, and are finding ways to uh, help their, their students understand history more uh, clearly than maybe we did in our, our uh, academic experiences. Um, the worst thing that can happen for a student who's um, experiencing racism, either through interpersonal interactions or through systemic oppression, to have that suffering minimized. Um, it, it, systemic racism affects us in the same way that other traumatic events do. Other traumatic stressors. And to have that suffering minimized, dismissed, um, or um, excused is really harmful. And I, I believe educators are at greater risk for that dismissiveness, um, that excusal, uh, if they don't understand the history of our country and the realities that our young people are facing and how those conditions have been 
um, created and sustained by racism. Megan Holmes, anything to add to that? I would just say adding opp opportunity for dialogue for kids to be able to talk about those issues in the classroom, creating curriculum that is not uh, focused on the white culture and making sure that you know, black history is not just a month, but rather it's integrated in part of the lessons that we have that we're teaching our students. Thanks. Another question for you, uh, and again, if you have questions, please text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, or you can tweet them at the City Club, and we'll work them in. Um, once the pandemic reached Ohio and we locked down and closed schools, there was concern that incidences of child abuse would increase because students wouldn't be going to school or daycare where abuse might be recognized. What steps were taken to keep vulnerable children safe then and now as many schools are still remote? Megan Holmes? That's, that's a great question. Uh, we did see rates of child maltreatment throughout the state of Ohio. The reporting went down. We saw rates of domestic violence increasing. And um, so, I, to be honest, I don't know the steps that were taken for more surveillance. I imagine it was more outreach into the homes. Um, you know, having neighbors and, and teachers, community members checking in on those families that they were concerned about. But we, were, we have seen less, less reports since the pandemic started. Habiba Grimes, did you, in terms of the families that you work with and the students you work with, is this, is this uh, a phenomenon you've encountered in terms of the reduction in contact leading to a reduction in, in reporting? It's a concern that we have. It's a concern that we that emerged quickly for us at the time of uh, the school closures. Uh, our goals have been to maintain contact with our students and with their caregivers. Knowing that this is an extremely stressful time, knowing that parental and caregiver stress uh, and child challenges, so presenting problems that a child may have, can increase that risk for abuse and, and neglect, it was essential to us that we maintain that line of connection, uh, even with a digital divide in front of us, uh, using the phone, doing that outreach, being connected to the greatest degree possible was an important protective uh, step for us so that we could provide the support that children and families would need and hopefully mitigate that risk for harm to happen to children during this time. Can I, I want to ask you both um, the uh, kind of practical question that's related to all of this as well. I mean, teachers, in, a, in an elementary school, a teacher may have 30 to 40 students. Um, at, a, at a high school, a teacher may be um, encountering uh, 100 to 200 students in a day um, and, and cycling through very quickly with these students as well. And how, I mean... There's a sort of stance that you can take as, a, as an educator to say, okay, I'm, I'm now going to be thinking about all of this and try to be aware of it. But ultimately, if you're seeing 200 students a day, how do you how do, you do this? So I would say the, the trauma-informed approach is just to assume everybody's experiencing trauma and has experienced it. And so the approach is that your goal is to not re-traumatize them. And so it's not your job to know what exactly the child is going through, but to notice when they're feeling dysregulated 
and to notice when, when they're getting upset. And so using a trauma-informed approach would be then using those regulation skills to help them calm their body, to soothe that stress that they're feeling so that then they can engage back in the learning. The um, schools aren't always set up for that, though. And sometimes, and if you have a student who is can't self-regulate or can't, you know, can't, you know, be redirected, um, you need help. And mm-hmm. often, right now, the help comes in the form of a security guard. Yeah. How should schools be set up differently, Habiba? Go. You know, I, I feel compelled to talk about the three R's that we we hold dear here at PEP. They are part of our trauma-informed. Uh, practice, right? So there's the the core philosophy, but then there's the practice. And uh, we use the words regulate, relate, and reason in that order uh, as important things to build into the school day with young people. Um, That comes from the work of Dr. Bruce Perry and the Child Trauma Academy, specifically the neurosequential model, which has an educational element to it that teachers and education leaders can access uh, that reminds us that We can't be thinking about and learning high order kinds of content if we aren't regulated. If we're anxious, if we're worried, if um, we've had a significant loss, our heart rate and so on is going to be so out out of whack that we need to do some things that will regulate our nervous system so that we can then have some relational interaction. That relational interaction sets the stage for the teaching and learning that's to come. And if educators build in regulating activities, relational opportunities, the teaching will happen. And so I think, you know, for a large school with a large number of students in a classroom, there are many strategies. Some of them, they're called brain smart um, strategies that just build into your routine rhythm, repetition, um, and, and pattern that regulate, regulate the brain and body. In my household, I've got a a six-year-old who can get pretty dysregulated um, on his Zoom calls and so on. He has unfettered access to gum. Chewing gum and putting this input into his body that is rhythmic, that is muscular, it regulates him. It brings his arousal down. Now he can hear his teacher and build this relationship and actually learn the, 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 the academic content that she's trying to teach. Um, So often in schools, it's about what we can't do. Um, And COVID-19 has made that worse. And here at PEP, I was so grateful and proud of a team that worked together to identify, here's what we can do using the regulate, relate, and reason framework. That is very helpful. Thank you very much. Super concrete. Uh, We're in the midst of the pandemic still, still experiencing collective trauma. What can we expect once we're on the other side? The effects will linger what should we be thinking about when it comes to supporting children, families, educators, and all of this as we move through this and beyond it? Megan Holmes. So the number one way to reduce stress is to connect with others. So we're talking about relational health. So connecting with people that are supportive, being in environments where you feel valued are what we need to be focusing on. And um, you know, looking at the school system, creating schools that share that vision of psychological safety and that connection, that piece that is so important for healing the teachers as well as the those kiddos. That feels, I mean, that feels important, that feels good, but but also like not enough, right? I mean, the that Habiba Grimes, I mean, students are going to be, we have a generation here 
that this will be the the seminal pivotal thing that, that from their childhood yeah megan's still right on point um <laughs> I know it feels like not enough, but here's where history can help us. The way that human beings have survived the conditions of this earth, which can be a bit harsh, is in community with one another, in relationship with one another, in social groups. The, one of the hardest parts about all of this is that we're disconnected from one another and those social groups. Uh, when we have the ability to come together again, it is so essential that we embrace one another, that we mobilize the potential of collective care. That is our, our human, um, most important human attribute. It's how we survive this, the conditions of this earth. My hope is that we tackle some of the barriers to our connecting, specifically uh, racial, uh, the, 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 the issue of racism. We, ha we have this moment right now where we can begin to dismantle those barriers to our connecting because we're gonna need each other so desperately when we are able to come back into community just as we need each other now um, but aren't able to be in shared space. Well, the importance of all of what you're saying is, believe me, it's not lost on me. I mean, what we do at the City Club is we bring people together for conversations and, you know, and, and, and it is that I've been very cognizant lately of the importance of that and the loss that we've all experienced. If we're not seeing one another in classrooms or seeing one another at church or seeing one another at the city club or, I mean, this morning I actually had breakfast with a colleague and had a very Cleveland moment, right, where I, I saw somebody across the restaurant. Oh, I know that person. And, and you know, the, and that, that sense of community, it really is part of what holds us together as a, as a species. Yes. Another question for you, um, where are the resources most, where are resources most needed to take a more holistic approach to mental, emotional, and behavioral health? Like specifically, I think that this, uh, that one of our listeners on Twitter is asking like, where can I find the information that I need? Megan Holmes. Well, are they, I guess I would think about it in a couple ways. So if they're asking specifically about how do we become trauma-informed, there's different models that they can use. So there's the sanctuary model that Habiba mentioned. Uh, Sandy Bloom has come out with a new model that is less expensive and mostly online. She just released it, I think, last week. That is another trauma-informed approach to organizations. And I'm not clear on how much that is applicable. I'm sure it's applicable to education, but not specific to education. Uh, and then there's there's a bunch of resources online. Our website at the Center on Trauma University has a whole list of ways you can cope, uh, focusing on the mind, the body, the soul, um, and the spirit in order to heal yourself. And um, there's resources there about creating self-care plans so that you know what to do when you're you're feeling dysregulated. Habiba Grimes, are there specific resources that, that you and your colleagues have found useful that are easily accessible to somebody who's scrolling through Twitter right now and needs something else to do? Mm -hmm. um, so I will say first that um, tapping into the arts, arts and culture, we have such a, a richness of those resources here locally. So um, as a strategy for self-care, as a, a strategy for self-regulation, uh, I'm a huge proponent of the arts, as are so many of my colleagues. Um, and then I have a book here to share. I usually have a book to share, but um, Trauma Stewardship by um, Laura Vandernut Lipsky. 
um, I think is a, a really helpful resource for individuals who are um, helping individuals who've experienced traumatic stress, uh, adversity, and who themselves are finding that they are feeling impacted by it. Um, those those are, are a couple things that come to mind. In addition to, if you need additional support, seek that support out from um, experts with uh, training who can either link you to additional supports and resources or provide that service themselves. Great, and we will try to get some links up on our website at cityclub.org as well. Um, can you address the need for schools to provide strong process for interventions and support to react to student needs regardless of if a difficulty exists because of a disability, which often may require some sort of evaluation process first? Megan Holmes. Yeah, the, the trauma-informed approach is that it applies to everybody, that you don't, you don't need to get an IEP to, to have access to it, but really that every child should be receiving this, this type of care uh, for the whole classroom, and every teacher should be treated in that way as well. Anything to add to that, Habiba Grimes? Yes. Um, Megan mentioned this earlier, we don't always know what's happened to a child or a young person. And so the entire structure of intervention and support for young people should be informed by the, the trauma-informed approach. Um, and so as an educator, if you're not finding that the system is um, supportive in the ways that you think are necessary, I encourage folks to connect with school psychologists in their building, connect with the principal, talk with that student support team or intervention response team, the, the, the group of individuals who are charged with both the design and implementation of this, the interventions and supports in a building to talk through how might we make this a more trauma-informed uh, framework for supporting the young people in the building. Habiba Grimes, what advice can you give parents, especially parents of very young children or children on the autism spectrum, to help explain the changes in routine and scheduling brought on by the pandemic, changes that are often very disruptive to these children? Uh, my heart uh, goes out to parents and caregivers of young children and children with significant developmental and cognitive delays because it is tough work. Um, there are social stories that come to mind right away, which are visual ways of very simply helping the young person understand what's happening um, and what's changing. Being able to introduce the new narrative as soon as possible, so before that transition or that change in structure is going to happen, being able to, to prepare the child through a social story or some way of narratively um, pictorially helping the young person understand the change that's going to come and doing that up front as early as possible often with some routine can be very helpful um, and also being gentle with ourselves and our young people um, that self-regulation no matter what the needs are of the child that you're caring for or providing or, or parenting your own self-regulation is so essential to how they will respond to whatever that change is that is upcoming or on um, happening uh, more immediately. Being able to stay in that space of calm is going to do a whole lot for that child because they are they're going to mirror what they see from the adult. 
Habiba Grimes is the CEO of the Positive Education Program. Megan Holmes is the director of the Center for Trauma and Adversity, for the study of trauma and adversity at Case Western Reserve University's Mandel School for Applied Social Sciences. Thank you both so much for joining us for the City Club Friday Forum today. Thank you. Thanks for There's having us. There's huge amounts of applause happening right now. You just, you just can't hear. It's all virtual. <laughs> Our forum today would not have been possible without the partnership of the Northeast Ohio Education Association. Great thanks to them. Also, thanks to our member sponsors and donors and others who support our mission to create conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. You can find out more at cityclub.org slash thank you. Next Friday, October 16th, we welcome Adi Tomer, the, the Metropolitan Policy Program Fellow at Brookings Institution, and Freddie Collier, Jr., Director of City Planning for the City of Cleveland, for a conversation on building the 21st century city. Also, I want to encourage you to check out our new video series, Democracy Unchained, produced in partnership with a number of great folks. Our episode four launched last night, and it is focused on reparations and original sins. That's all for today. You can find out more, by the way, at democracyunchained.io. That's all for today. Stay strong and stay healthy. I'm Dan Malthrop. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, the Chautauqua Institution, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.